0: Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, February 12th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with the article, Justin Trudeau, U.S. fighter jet shoots down object over Northern Canada. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Saturday that on his order a U.S. fighter jet shot down an unidentified object that was flying High or Yukon a day after the U.S. took similar action over Alaska. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, the U.S.-Canada organization that provides shared defense of airspace over the two nations, detected the flying object at a high-altitude Friday evening over Alaska, U.S. officials said. It crossed into Canadian airspace on Saturday. Trudeau spoke with U.S. President Joe Biden, who also ordered the object to be shot down. Canadian and U.S. jets operating as part of NORAD were scrambled and it was a U.S. jet that shut down the object. Canadian Defense Minister Anita Anad told a news conference in Ottawa that the object, flying at around 40,000 feet, had been shut down at 3.41 p.m. Eastern Time, approximately 100 miles from the Canada-U.S. border in the central Yukon. A recovery operation was underway involving the Canadian Armed Forces and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Hours later, the US, the Federal Aviation Administration, said, night, said Saturday night it closed some airspace in Montana to support Defense Department activities. NORAD later said that the closure, which lasted a little more than an hour, came after it had detected a radar anomaly and sent fighter craft, a fighter aircraft to investigate. The aircraft did not identify any objects to correlate to the radar hits, Norad said. An F-1 fighter jets have taken out three objects in the airspace above the U.S. and Canada over seven days, a stunning development. At least one of the objects down was believed to be a spy balloon from China, but the other two had not yet been publicly identified. While Trudeau described the object Saturday as an un- unidentified object, Anad said it appeared to be a small cylindrical object, smaller than the one that was downed off the coast of North Carolina, a NORAD spokesman, Major Oliver Gallant, said. The military determined what it was but would not reveal details. Anad refused to speculate whether the object shut down over Canada came from China. We are continuing to do the analysis on the object, and we will make sure that the analysis is thorough, she said. It would not be prudent for me to speculate on the origins of the object at this time. Anad said to her knowledge this was the first time NORAD has downed an object in Canadian airspace. The importance of this moment should not be underestimated, she said. We detected this object together and we defeated this object together. She was asked why a US jet and not a Canadian plane shut down the object. As opposed to separating it out by country, I think what the important point is, these were NORAD capabilities. This was a NORAD mission, and this was NORAD doing what it's supposed to do, she said. Anad didn't use the word balloon to describe the object, but later, General Wayne Ear, chief of the defense staff, said the instructions given to the planes was whoever had the first, best shot to take out the balloon had the go-ahead. Trudeau said Canadian forces would recover the wreckage for study. The Yukon is the westernmost Canadian territory and among the least populated parts of Canada. After the airspace closure over Montana, multiple members of Congress, including Montana Senators Steve Daines and John Tester, said they were in touch with defense officials. Daines tweeted that he would continue to demand answers on these invasions of U.S. airspace. A day earlier, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said an object roughly the size of a small car was shot out over the skies above remote Alaska. Officials couldn't say if it had surveillance equipment, where it came from, or what its purpose had. Kirby said that it was shot down because it was flying at about 40,000 feet and posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flights not because of any knowledge that it was engaged in surveillance. According to U.S. Northern Command, recovery operations continued Saturday on sea ice near Dead Horse, Alaska. In a statement, the North, Car- North Command said that there were new details in what the object was. It said the Alaska Command and the Alaska National Guard, along with the FBI and local law enforcement, were conducting search and recovery. Arctic weather conditions, including wind chill, snow, and limited daylight, are a factor in this operation, and personnel will adjust recovery operations to maintain safety, the statement said. On February 4th, U.S. officials shot down a large white balloon off the coast of South Carolina. It was part of a large surveillance program that China has been conducting for several years, the Pentagon said. The U.S. said Chinese balloons have flown over dozens of countries across five continents in reason, recent years, and it learned more about the balloon program after closely monitoring the one shot down near South, North Carol- South Carolina. China responded that it reserved the right to take further action and criticized the U.S. for an obvious overreaction and a serious violation of international practice. The Navy continued survey and recovery activities on the ocean floor off South Carolina, and the Coast Guard was providing security. Additional debris was pulled out Friday, and additional operations will continue as weather permits, North Command said. Now let's move on to a different article. Following history book omission, a former DOJ staffer takes out a billboard. Stephanie Wright has written out was written out of the history books she posted a correction the former cedar falls resident took out a billboard noting her status as the first african-american assistant u.s attorney for iowa's northern district i almost didn't know why they left my name out it just so happens that i was working for something on black history month last year and i just happened to look it up tried to find my name," said Wright, who retired in 2018 and now lives in Virginia Beach, Virginia. The digital billboard measures 10 feet high by 30 feet wide and is posted atop a downtown Cedar Rapids building, not far from the federal courthouse where Wright worked for 24 years. Wright said that her name was excluded from the 2020 edition of a History of the United States District Court for Northern District of Iowa, nineteen eighteen eighty two through twenty twenty. The bound two hundred and sixty seven page tome was given to court officials as a gift and was filled in filed in law libraries. It features significant cases handled by the courts and historical events like the two thousand eight flood that uprooted court operations in Cedar Rapids until a new courthouse was built. The back of the book includes an appendix listing all of the United States attorneys who led office the current and past assistant U.S. Attorneys who served under them, U.S. Marshals, Federal Public Defenders, Law Clerks, and so on. Wright's listing, a simple line showing her name and dates of service, 1994 to 2018, was supposed to be on page 236, but she is absent from the book, a fact that didn't go unnoticed. "'I know that my name was the only name that was not included in the hard copy version,' Wright said. Wright wrote to Northern District Historical Society officials who compiled information for the publication, seeking a correction. Judge Jane Kelly with the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals arranged to produce a corrected version of the page with Wright's listing that could be pasted over page 236 of the printed versions. The correction was also made in the digital version that is posted online. A letter from court officials involved in the project said that the omission was an unfortunate oversight and noted the first edition in 1987 didn't include assistant U.S. attorneys and the second edition in 2000 included only current but not past assistant U.S. attorneys. Though Wright said she has her doubts. It was intentional. It wasn't clearly advertent. Nobody's going to admit it was intentional, said Wright who cited sometimes rocky tenure at the Northern District. This includes how she sided with a coworker who who has had filed a suit against the Department of Justice in 2012, alleging age discrimination and harassment under their boss, then U.S. Attorney Stephanie Rose. Wright said that she submitted an affidavit in the court supporting her friend. Her friend ultimately lost the case in a jury trial. Soon after, Wright said that she was passed up for an opening she wanted, an assistant assignment con- concentrating on Americans with Disabilities Act compliance cases. "They really did not want me there," she said. Wright, a Missouri native, received her bachelor's degree in business administration from the US from the University of Missouri at St. Louis and landed a job as an engineering analyst with John Deere in Waterloo. When she was laid off, she went to law school, earning her degree from Northwestern School of Law in Portland, Oregon. She interned with Waterloo Public Defender's Office and after graduation was briefly an assistant Black Hawk County attorney. Stephen Rapp hired her to work in the criminal division out of Cedar Rapids in 1994. She was the first African-American assistant U.S. attorney for Iowa's Northern District. Now on to another very different article, How the Boneless Wing Became a Tasty Culinary Lie. One day in 2020, as the COVID-19 pandemic's height, an earnest-looking man with long hair the color of buffalo sauce stepped up to a podium in Lincoln, Nebraska to address the city council during its public comment period. His unexpected topic as he framed it, it was time to end the deception. I propose that we as a city remove the name Boneless Wings from our menus and from our hearts, said Ander Christensen, who managed to be both persuasive and tongue-in-cheek all at once. We've been living a lie for too long. With the Super Bowl at hand, behold the cheerful untruth that has been perpetuated upon and generally with the blessing of the chicken-consuming citizens of the United States on menus across the land. A boneless wing that isn't a wing at all. Odds are that you already knew that. Those spot checks over the past year at a smattering of wing joints suggest a healthy amount of Americans don't. But those little white meat and nuggets, tasty as they may be, offer a glimpse into how things are marketed, how people believe them, and whether it matters to anyone but the chicken. This weekend, according to the National Chicken Council. Americans are set to eat 1.45 billion chicken wings. So if you ever wanted a deep dive into what it means to eat the wings that aren't, and how the chicken's wings' proximate proximity to beer, good times, and football sent it soaring, now's the time. Today's food landscape is brimming with these imposters, things that we eat that pass as other things we eat. Surimi is a fish that effectively becomes crab or lobster meat for many of us, and stars in California rolls across the land. Carrots are cut cut and buffed until their edges are curved and smooth, becoming baby carrots, or slightly more truthfully, baby cut carrots. Impossible burgers are plants based on delicacies that carry many of meat's characteristics without ever having been near an animal. And Chilean sea bass? Not a bass at all, but a rebrand of something called a Patagonian toothfish. Part of the reason for the rise in the, of the boneless wing is money. In recent years, with prices of actual chicken wings rising, the alternative became more cost-effective. The average price for prepared boneless wings is around $4.99 a pound compared with prepared boneless wings, compared with eight thirty-eight a pound for bone-in wings, according to Tom Super Senior Vice President of Communications for the National Chicken Council citing the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He calls it a way to move more boneless, skinless breast meat that continues currently to be in ample supply. While many wing consumers argue that the wing needs a bone to, be imparted, to impart a special taste, the ongoing success of boneless wings has proven that there are plenty of boneless wing dinners, Super sent in an email. Why? Part of it is because boneless wings summon a powerful backstory. You're associating it with the Super Bowl and parties and fun, so you transform that perception of the product, said Christopher Kimball, founder of Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, a company whose magazine, an instructional TV show, help people cook and learn about food. Most people have no idea where any of this stuff comes from, Kimball said. You can blame the food companies, but we're, but we're buying We accept them. We embrace them, even. And what does it really matter, you say? They're delicious. They're convenient. But they could be a microcosm of the national willingness to accept things that aren't what what they purport to be. And isn't that something that this country struggles with mightily, particularly in the misinformation and disinformation-saturated years since the Boneless Wing entered our world? It's not really wrong, but are we tricking people, wonders Matthew Reed, who teaches advertising at Le Mans College in Syracuse, New York. After two decades with ad agencies, he hosts a cooking show on local television called Spatchcock Funk. The wing, he said, has gone from being an actual part of the chicken to just being something that you can sauce and eat with your hands. Whether cut from actual flying-related appendages or not, boneless wings have taken hold. The chicken council asked asks wing eaters in 2018 which kind of wings they preferred, and 40% of people placed themselves on team boneless. Previous years were even higher. Christensen, a chemical engineer by day, has been on his wing crusade for years. It began in college, when he and a group of friends started going to wing restaurants three times a week. He began noticing how many boneless wings were ordered, with no sense of what they weren't. It's no sense that they weren't what they were purported to be. And a semi-comedic cause was born. He has done informal surveys, including at a recent college football game in Ohio. The vast majority of people have said no clue. He said, most people think it's part of the wing. Some think it's part of the thigh. A small group realized it was from the chicken breast. His theory, generations that grew up on chicken nuggets, turned to boneless wings as a way of allowing themselves to continue those eating habits. They've got to pretend they're eating like adults, he said. Now back to another government article. Reynolds End Income Tax. The governor's goal is to abolish state income tax by the end of her term. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds say, saying, she is not done cutting taxes, announced Friday it is her goal to abolish the state income tax by the end of her four-year term. State lawmakers have passed various tax reform measures over the last several years, including establishing a flat tax in the state for personal income tax. And I can tell you without hesitation, we're not done, Reynolds said, during a state policy leadership forum in Washington, D.C., hosted by the conservative category Cato Institute. My goal isn't to get to zero individual income tax rate. My goal is to get to zero individual income tax rate by the end of this second term. Reynolds, Iowa's first female governor, was re-elected in November to a term expi- expiring in 2026. She received the highest grade for fiscal responsibility among the nation's governors in a report issued last year by the institute. The biannual report grades governors on their financial policies from a limited government perspective and awards higher grades to governors whose states have cut taxes and spending, according to the Caddo Institute. The report noted the tax cut legislation passed by Iowa lawmakers and signed into law by Reynolds in 2018, 2020, and 2022, the final which will phase state income taxes down to a flat rate, of 3.9% by 2026, meaning every resident with a taxable income will be in on the one remaining tax bracket regardless of what they earn. At that point, the cuts will reduce Iowa's state income taxes and thus also reduce state revenue by nearly $2 billion annually. Reynolds and lawmakers also dropped the Iowa corporate income tax rate from 9.8% to 5.5% and eliminated state tax on retirement income. Democrats argue the wealthiest Iowans will receive the greatest share of benefits, while Reynolds and Republicans say the law will attract new residents and make the state more competitive. I think Iowans know better what to do with their money than government, Reynolds said. When you let Iowans decide what they're going to do with their money, we see communities flourish, we see states flourish, we see revenue grow, so it works. Seven states, Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Wyoming, have no state income tax. New Hampshire does not tax earned income and is currently phasing out a tax, interest and divided income. Washington similarly does not have a traditional income tax, instead taxing capital gains of income higher earner, of income of higher earners. Seems like a radical idea, but as you know, there's nine U.S. states that don't have individual income taxes, and the interesting thing about them is that they're all in different parts of the country. And there's red states and blue states," said Chris Edwards, Kilp's family chair in the Fiscal Studios at the Cato Institute. They all manage to survive, and indeed all the states have no income taxes have no incoming taxes and are prospering and generally have high economic growth rates. Harkening back to her condition of the state address from January, Reynolds argued the state tax cuts have helped Iowa better meet the current national economic challenges while still adequately funding state programs and making large investments in K through 12 education, broadband and public safety. Iowa, though, continues to grapple with a workforce and affordable housing and childcare shortage. Reynolds also defended her successful push creating universal state-funded scholarships that Iowa families can use to send their children to private schools. The nonpartisan Legislative Service Agency estimates that the program, what when fully phased on, will cost $345 million a year. The governor argued that the law will give more options to parents and increase the quality of education for all students. Opponents say it will siphon money from public schools to fund private institutions that aren't subject to the same oversight and devotes tax money to private schools that could reject students with disabilities or families whose values don't align with theirs. Reynolds pushed back on the notion pushed on the notion of a lack of accountability of private schools, noting the law includes provision requiring students in private schools that use an education savings account to take all applicable federal and state assessments. I want to know what some of the outcomes were in investing in education savings accounts and giving parents choice over funding the student and not the system, Reynolds said but I want to know some of those metrics. We can aggregate the data, but I want to know how they're scoring and what they're doing and how they're doing. And we've just got a small set of additional metrics that we've added to that. Iowa lawmakers last week, however, advanced a bill to loosen testing requirements for students taking advantage of the just passed program. Under House Study Bill 138, state-required assessment would be optional for students using the education savings accounts rather than required. The students still would require to take all federal required assessments, including the Iowa Statewide Assessment of Student Progress. Iowa Democratic leaders in the House and Senate decried the move with a House Minority Leader, Jennifer Confirst of Windsor Heights, telling reporters, I told you so. This is what happens, this is what we said would happen with private school vouchers, that private schools would continue to get away with not following the rules and not following along and not being held accountable, Confirst said. We're not even three weeks out from passing the vouchers and we're already removing accountability from our private schools. Asked by Reynolds, Asked about Reynolds' appearance at the Cato Institute Forum, Confirst accused the governor of catering to corporate and special interests and wanting to build her national profile among Republicans. Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls echoed Confirst. We know that the number one goal of the Iowa Republican Party is a sustained attack on our public education system, Walls told reporters Thursday ahead of Friday's forum. That the, that is a goal that is shared by Republicans in the Washington D.C. and that is why people from Washington D.C. have flown to Iowa to take selfies with the governor behind the Iowa Senate on the night the law was passed, and why they bankrolled challenges to some Iowa Republicans in the House and Senate who opposed the plan. So again, I just another perfect example. Of Republican putting politics over the people of the state, Walls said, Reynolds last year took the rare measure of endorsing primary challengers to several Republicans who opposed the private tuition bill, successfully ousting several GOP incumbents, including former House Education Committee Chair Dustin Haidt of New Sharon. Re- Reynolds said that it was no, that it was a move that she did not take lightly. I was either going to stand by and continue to be an enabler and not get this legislation passed or intervene to get all parents the choice to decide what environment they want their their child to receive their public education, be that public or private. I truthfully believe with all of my heart that it elevates education overall, Ronald said. Now on to another article. Lake brings vote fraud claims to Iowa. Arizonian in Bettendorf says she's ready to go Iowa witch on media. Several hundred people packed into a Bettendorf room Friday to see Scott County raised Arizona news anchor turned right-wing politician Carrie Lake, who brought a message questioning election integrity. Lake urged Iowa Republicans to pose questions to GOP presidential candidates reporting 2024 Hawkeye State voters about their stances on election integrity and fraud. Iowa has already seen several national Republican figures as the state prepares to host the party's first-in-the-nation caucuses. Lake, 53, ran for Arizona governor, making former President Donald Trump's claims on election fraud central to her campaign. She lost by less than a percentage point, or about 17,000 votes. Her campaign sued in court, claiming that the printing errors in the state were populous county the state's most populous county were intentional, and that cost her the election by surpassing Election Day Republican voters. A judge appointed by former GOP Arizona governors dismissed the lawsuit, saying that her campaign failed to prove any intentional mishandling, or that the printing error had an impact on the outcome of the election at all. The suit, which Lake said, she said, 100% focused on, is making its way through the Court of Appeals. Iowa leads the whole charge when it comes to the presidential politics, right? Lake said. You guys see everything come through here four years, every four years. I know you take that responsibility seriously, but you need to start calling out these candidates and saying, where do you stand on election integrity? And if we keep having elections stolen, it doesn't matter how, ma- how how good candidates is. It doesn't matter how good the policy is, Lake said. Lake was one of several Republican candidates who questioned the results of the 2020 elections. According to Associated Press analysis, about half of the party's nominees for governor, state's attorney, and secretary of state who embraced Trump's claims of election fraud won their races, and nearly all of those were incumbents. Lake repeated her claims of ballot mishandling and accused the media of lying and failing to report accurately on her claims. She said she's been practicing Iowa nice recently, but in a play on words, I'm starting to think maybe I need to try a little Iowa, how do you say it? I'm not going to say the word I'm thinking. I'm about to go Iowa witch on the media. The Republicans introducing Lake told the audience that she was born in Rock Island and graduated from North Scott High School. Lake said that she grew up with eight older siblings and that she pointed out a few of her family members in the audience Friday, who waved at the crowd. Lake graduated from the University of Iowa with a journalism degree. Between 1991 in 1994, Lake worked for two news stations in the Quad Cities, according to Quad Cities Times archives. Lake began at KQWC as an intern and later joined WHBF in Rock City, in Rock Island, as a daily reporter and weekend weather caster. Lake told the audience that she was not in Iowa to run for president, but one audience member yelled VP. Lake responded, I love President Trump. I will do everything in my power to get that man elected. She said that she visited Quad City's favorites like Happy Joes and Whitney's. Lake criticized the Biden administration for its handling of the U.S. border with Mexico and said aid to Ukraine, which was passed with bipartisan support, should have gone to border security. It was standing room only to see Lake Friday at the Tanglewood Pavilion, an event center in Bettendorf. Doors opened at around 11.15 a.m. for a noon event, with a line stretched through the parking lot by a quarter to 11. Mackenzie Kent, a freshman at St. Ambrose University from Bentendorf, wearing a Trump sweatshirt, said that she felt that she could relate to Lake as a strong female conservative. Kent said that she was impressed by Lake's speech and thought that she had strong talking points. She called Lake's continued lawsuit challenge and admirable, but said the election integrity wasn't the only political issue she cared about she listed the economy fentanyl and border security as top issues paula wright 67 of mass of muscatine came to see lake because that she said that she followed lake's campaign and liked what she had to say about the u.s border with mexico and wanted to hear her vision for the country wright called herself a conspiracy theorist and that she thought Lake probably got robbed of an election win, but her feelings didn't translate, didn't transfer to Trump's claims of election fraud. I don't think he won, but I wish that he had, Wright said. She said she liked to see Senator Tim Scott put his hat in the ring for president. Scott is planning a visit to Hawkeye State on February 22nd. Lake cited her dad, a former teacher and coach at North Scott, as she neared the end of her speech. If you lose, you lose with dignity, and you shake the other person's hand, and you walk away, Lake said, I didn't lose, so I'm not doing that. You were listening to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, February 12th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Barbara Ruth Eggst. Barbara Ruth Eggst, 90, of Waverly, Iowa, passed away Wednesday evening, February 8, 2023, at Bartles Lutheran Retirement Community in Waverly, Iowa. Barb was born on December 21, 1932, in Forest City, Iowa, the daughter of Russell and Ruby ba- Bauer. She graduated from Forest High School On August 12, 1950, Barbara was united in marriage to Herbert Bernard Ext in Alberta Lee, Minnesota. The couple made their home in the Waterloo area until 1967 when they bought their farm northeast of Waverly. Barb was an active member of the Redeemer Lutheran Church where she participated in many groups including the Rebecca Women's Circle, Altar Guild, and Prayer Chain. She and Herb were members of the Canoea Fellowship Group at Redeemer, which they held from which they helped form in 1977. Barb was a great mother, wife, and homemaker, proudly raising four boys. She was a good cook, enjoyed baking, her specialties being pecan rolls, cinnamon rolls, pies, and brownies. She spent many hours gardening. Her favorite produce was strawberries. Hosting family ga- holiday gatherings was especially important to Barb and her entire family. Barb survived by her husband of over 72 years, Herbert, three sons, and their wives, John, Nancy, Eggs of Shell Rock, Iowa, Dennis Ter- and Terry, Eggs of Arizona, and Anthony and Mary, Eggs of Bloomington, Illinois, daughter-in-law, Pam, Eggs of Bendorf, Iowa, and 12 grandchildren, Twenty-one great-grandchildren, a sister, Maxine Cobb of Clear Lake, Iowa, sister-in-law, Gloria Bauer, and several nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, her son, Thomas Eggs, three sisters, Arliss and Gary Floor of Catherine, uh, Catherine and Tom Kirschenbaum, Carolyn and William Hines, and, her, and a brother, Michael Bauer, and brother-in-law, Fred Cobb. Funeral services will be at 11.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February 14th at 2023 at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Waverly with Pastor Corey Smith officiating. Burial will follow in the Warren Evangelical Cemetery, rural Waverly. Visitation will be from 10 to the time of the funeral at the church on Tuesday. Online condolences may be left at www.kaisercorson.com. Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly is assisting Barb's family, 319-352-1187. Stanley L. Lauterbach Stanley L. Lauterbach, 89, of Waterloo, Iowa, died Tuesday, February seventh, 2023, at the Cedar Valley Hospice Home in Waterloo. He was born November 6, 1933, in Wellsburg, the son of Ben and Aline Prusner Lauterbach. Stan graduated from Wellsburg High School. He honorably served in the United States Army during the Korean conflict. Stan married Wayla Mae van Dienst May 25, 1956, at Bethany Presbyterian Church in Grundy Center. She died April 12, 2021. Stan worked for the United States Postal Service for 37 years as a mail sorter and later was in charge of the postal vehicles prior to his retirement in May 1994. He was a member of the, Uni- of the Unity Presbyterian Church of Waterloo. Stan served as president of the local Cerebral Palsy Association and served at the state level where he organized many telephones. He also volunteered with the Red Cross Disaster Team of- with Winona. Stan is survived by his two daughters, Connie Tribble, of Loveland, Colorado, and Cheryl Pickett of Rockwell City, six grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and brother Dennis Lauterbach of Dyke. He is preceded in death by his parents, wife Winona, great-granddaughter Catherine Maids, infant brother Eldon, and brother Leland Lauterbach. Family-directed memorial services will take place at 10.30 a.m., Monday, February 13, 2023, at the Unity Presbyterian Church, 1149 Haymond Avenue, Waterloo, Iowa. Military rights to be provided by the American Legion, Waterloo, Becker Chapman Post 138. Civilian Brothers, Sullivan Brothers, Waterloo, VFW Post 1623 and Iowa National Guard Funeral Honor Guard. Visitation will be for one hour prior at the church. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Cedar Valley Hospice. Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue, Waterloo, 319-233-3146 is assisting the family. Karen Salas. Karen Salas of Newton, Iowa passed away on February 5, 2023 at the age of 79 after a brief illness. Karen was born on May 17, 1943 to Chester and... Earl Dean Ellison in Anamosa, Iowa. Karen graduated from Anamosa High School in 1961. She later attended the University of Northern Iowa, where she received her bachelor's degree and later two master's degrees. Karen spent most of her career in the field of social work to help those in need. She worked in a variety of capacities with substance abuse treatments being particular interest. She worked as a substance abuse counselor and substance abuse treatment supervisor, youth shelter director, and most recently as co-owner of Integrated Treatment Services with her husband, Terry. Karen still carried a small caseload until the end. Karen is survived by her husband, Terry, sister Sandra Bain and Dennis, and children Robert Norris and Stacy, William Norris and Tina, Terry Salas, Salas, Amber Salas, Anthony Tate, and Christopher Jefferson. Karen had five grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Memorials can be sent to the church. Visitation will be from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Tuesday, February 14th at Faith Temple Baptist Church located at 234 South Hackett Road in Waterloo. Funeral services will be at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, February 15th, at Faith Temple Baptist Church, with burial in the Garden of the Last Supper section of the Garden of Memory Cemetery in Waterloo. Sanders Funeral Service is assisting the family. Nancy Lee Stoll Sliff. Nancy Lee Stole Sliff, 73, of Des Moines, Iowa, and formerly of Iowa Falls, Iowa, went home to be with her Lord and Savior on Monday, February 6, 2023, after living with cancer for a long time. Her daughter and loved ones were by her side, a beloved mom, grandma, sister, aunt, friend, and teacher. Nancy will be dearly missed. Nancy was born on June 12th, 1949 in Ames, Iowa, to her loving parents, Gerald M. and Betty A. Johnson Stoll. She joined her brother, Stephen, and sister, Susan, and later would become a big sister to Carolyn, Marcia, and Beverly. When Nancy was eight, her family moved from Gilbert, Iowa to an acreage north of Huxley, Iowa, with a timber where she discovered spring wildflowers. Nature brought Nancy great joy to her life. Her love of the natural world was instilled in all who knew her, including her students throughout her career as a biology instructor and lead professor with the conservation technology program at Ellsworth Community College in Iowa Falls. Nancy earned her associate of arts degree as a non-traditional student at ECC before transferring to the University of Northern Iowa during her bachelor's of arts degree in natural history interpretation. She served Hardin County as a naturalist for five years at Calkins Nature area while working part-time as an adjunct biology instructor at ECC before returning to UNI to pursue her masters of science degree in biology. Her family, friends, and her former students will remember her devotion, sense of wonder, and passion for learning and experiencing life. She made everything special. Nancy's greatest joy was being a mother to Leslie, mother-in-law to Kyle, and grandmother to Ethan. Ethan Michael, who was the light of her life after her retirement in 2019, Nancy moved to Des Moines to be closer to them in her retirement nancy had more time for bird watching gardening and getting to have cherished moments with ethan nancy enjoyed prairies marshes and woodlands she had a tremendous appreciation of music nancy would become fully absorbed in the beauty of every note those left to honor her memory include her daughter leslie the brower and grandson ethan of pleasant hill iowa Sister Carolyn and Michael, Carpenter of New Carlisle, Ohio. Sister Marcia and Mark, Stoll Kenny of Ames, Iowa. Sister Beverly and Robert Q of Waverly, Iowa. And many dear nieces and nephews and their families. And her longtime companion, Tom Shilkey of Waterloo, Iowa. Nancy was preceded in death by her parents, brother, Stephen Stoll, sister-in-law, Linda Stoll, sister, Suzanne Evans, and brother-in-law, Jim Evans. When the prairie that Nancy restored with her brother is in bloom this summer, her family will have a private celebration of her life. Inermint will be at Bethany Cemetery in Kelly, Iowa. The family is grateful for the compassionate care Nancy received from the nurses and staff at Kavanaugh House. Dr. Harachan and her team at Mission Cancer and Blood, and Dr. Schroeder, his team and oncology nurse navigator, Angela Dotson at the John Stodson Cancer's can- the Cancer Center. There are some who can live without wild things and some who cannot. Conservationist Aldo Leopold from a Sand County almanac. Remembrances may be emailed to the Adams Funeral Home, CO Nancy Silff Family, PO Box, Seven oh five, sorry, PO Box seven four five and Ames, Iowa five zero zero one zero. Funeral arrangements are under the dis- the direction of the Adams Funeral Home and online condolences may be left to Nancy's family at Adams, Adams Com. Now let's move over to the sports section, starting with district wrestling. Columbus and Jessup have huge days. Albernet was the clear winner at Saturday's 1A District 2 Championship with 209.5 points and 9 wrestlers qualifying for state. But it was also a big day for Columbus, Catholic, and Jessup. The sailors came in second place with a 141 points and 4 qualifiers, which head coach Denny Boylan said is likely their, le- their best performance in nearly two decades. Three of those wrestlers, Max Magana, Carson Hartz, and Mas- Mason Nip, were district champions. Hartz topped the top-ranked McCade Bloker of North Butler, Clarksville in his final 7-3. Returning state medalist Gavin Reed also qualified at 132. We came out today and we had some guys win matches that haven't won matches yet, and they won it at the district tournament and they did it at the district tournament, Boland said. They wrestled above their seed. Maximus Magana pinned Kyle's cowl of Tripola in a minute and 13 seconds for his win as he set his heights on his third consecutive state championship, making him Columbus Catholic's most successful wrestler. He's also happy to have company as he goes for the 3 P. I can't wait to go down. It should be a fun time, Magana said. State's actually long this year, so the hotel room should be fun. I love hanging out with the guys. The more guys, the better. Meanwhile, Jessup has made leaps and bounds in the last year, and its progress was on full display. When the dust had settled, they placed third with 131 points and five wrestlers from the Jayhawks had pushed, had punched their tickets to Des Moines, where they only sent the previous year. One of those, one of those going state. St- is freshman, amateur, athletic union veteran, Copper Hintz, who beat Lee DeWitt from Alburnett 1-0 decision to take first place in at, in the 106 pound division. The victory was made sweeter by the fact that he now has revenge over DeWitt, who won against them in the last match. Since DeWitt also finally qualified as the runner-up, they may have to face each other again, but for now, Hintz is happy. It means a lot," he said. "I'm going. I've been to state for AAU, but this is a lot bigger and more special. As for the Jayhawks, head coach Matt Gross said that he knew his team was onto something as it was as it prepared for the 2022-2023 season. The task then became realizing that potential and building on it. We've had kids buy in, and we knew that this season was going to be really special for us but we knew that, that there was a, lot, a whole lot of it definitely could be special, but these guys had to put the work in, Gross said. I guess what we've done is kids have bought it in, and they've fallen in love with the sport, built a close-knit family, and they show up to all practices. It's a massive leap from 12 months ago, but with with but none of his wrestlers being seniors, Gross said the sky's the limit. We have a really good group of young guys with us. We don't lose any seniors next year, so it's going to be really fun to bring everybody back and see where we can go, Gross said. In addition to hints, Aiden Bergman, Keith and Crawl, Trevin Delagardel, and Kyle Bucknell at one at qualified. Denver qualified two including one forty five pound champion Bowden White. White-topped Gunnar Keeney at Albernet in a barn burner to win at 12-10 in a sudden victory. Cade Bunnett also qualified at 285 for the Cyclones. Sumner Fredericksburg Kyle Coleman captured the 195 title by beating Corbin Hill of Denver 14-6 in the championship match. North Butler Clarksville had Tanner Arges win at 132, edging Gavin Reed of Columbus 4-3 in the finals another another wrestling article district wrestling roundup nashua plainsfield don bosco waverly Shell rock have banner days it was a banner day for the nashua plainfield wrestling program saturday in a 1a district meet at lake mills high school the huskies crowned nine champions and qualified 13 of 14 wrestlers to the state tournament as they boat raced the field np saw Jaden Rinkin, Nick Braze, Garrett Rinkin, Kendrick Huck, Caden Wilkin, Titus Evans, Tate White, Aiden Sullivan, and Landon Pratt all win district titles. The Huskies also qualified Hayden Munn at 120, Jackson Carey at 152, Eli Kalanoff at 160, Jackson Swanziger at 220, Devin Blanchard took, three, took third at 145, Garrett Rinkin, the Northern Iowa recruit, improved 40 to 47-0 and 0 with his title. He won by medical forfeit in the finals. The Huskies racked up twenty-seven, two hundred 274.5 points, more than 100, over runner-up Lake Mills. The Huskies had never qualified more than nine wrestlers for the state tournament before this season. We were one of the, the toughest sectionals last year in the state, National Plainfield head coach Alf Frost said. This year, we might have been in one of the earliest districts in the state. I don't know, it kinda goes year by year. As for 13 qualifiers, Frost likes it. It's gotta help, it can't hurt, Frost said, of his team's district win. Obviously, our main goal right now was to get guys to skate. Now, the second main goal is we won a trophy. It's going to take more than a handful of guys that have been doing it all year. It's going to take some extra points. Momentum is there. We can f- we can feed on it. If we can continue going and guys don't get shell-shocked when they're down there, we can make some things happen. At McGregor, Wapsie Valley of Fairbank advanced 7-1A to 1A State. Winning district titles for the Warriors were Dawson Schmidt at 126, Garrett Miller at 152, Cannon Yogurt at 182. Wopsie also qualified Landon Frost at 113, Easton Crawl at 132, Cannon Decker at 138, and Derek Hilsenbeck at 285. Defending state champion Don Bosco of Gilbertville placed 11 into the 1A state, including nine champions at English Valleys. Winning titles for the Dons were Cole Frost at 113, Jackson Larson at 120, Miles McManaw at 138, Caden Knack at 145, Tyler Knack at 152, Jacob Thury at 170, Landon Fernandez at 182, Jared Thury, Thury at 220, and Mac Ortner at 285. Cannon Delegardell at 106 and Andrew Kimball at 160 each won a wrestleback match to earn their tickets to the state meet. Seven of Don Bosco's 11 qualifiers have been on the podium at state before, including Jared Thirty, who is the defending champion at 220. Also in English Valleys, Hudson's Mason Fogged at 113 and Ben Holton at 138 qualified for the Pirates. In Class 2A, top ranked Osage qualified 10, including nine champions in Iowa Falls. The Green Devils got individual titles from Blake Fox, Ander- Anders Kittleson, Tucker Stengel, Chase Thomas, Max Gast, Nick Foss Fox, Cole Jeffries, Barrett Mueller, and Mac Mueller. Also qualifying for the Green Devils was Tyson Staggle at 106. At a 2A qualifier in Decorah, Charles City advanced five wrestlers, including three champions to the state meet. Talon Weber topped Jesse Grimes of North Fayette Valley 7-4 to to win at 152. At 182, Caden Blunt beat Brock Boyna of Crestwood 12-18. 12 to 8 to win. At 195, Ethan Peterson decked New Hampton's Isaac Howe in 5 to th- 5 minutes and 37 seconds to win. Carter Harborkorn topped Linden Burroughs of New Hampton Turkey Valley 8 to 4 to finish second at 106. Nathan Lopez pinned North Fayette Valley's Logan Boehm in a 219 finish second at 145. Crestwood won the district and qualified seven wrestlers. Appleton parkersburg slash Grundy Center qualified three, including district champion Trent Cake Rice, who, who pinned Isaac Erickson of Waukon and two minutes and 56 seconds in the finals. Carter Liston at 120 and Clay Sack at 170 also qualified. New Hampton Turkey Valley qualified four, including champions Ben Teng, at 170, and Braden McShane at 220. Peter Peyton Anderson at 138, and Carson Colbett at 160 also qualified. North Fayette moved three, champion Nick Koch at 132, as well as Kyson Moss at 113, and Jesse Grimes at 132. In independence, the Mustangs qualified five into the 2A field, including three champions, Kale Wheland, Carter Straw, and Korber Hubke. Hayden Creamer and Tyler Wheland at 132 and 138 respectively each finished second. Union of LaPorte City saw all three of its returning state medalists advance as champions. Brayden Bosack and Caleb Olsen won at 106 and 145 respectively, while the defending state champion Jack Haydeman rolled through 113 fields to remain unbeaten in his career. Dyke New Hartford had a pair of champions in Zach Edelman at 182, Nick Rannicky at 220, while Wolverines Caden Buskell at 170 and Will Textor at 285 also made the field. Marsh- in Marshalltown in 3A District, Cedar Falls advanced its seven wrestlers. The Tigers had champions in Kane Shrimp at 126 and Drew Campbell at 220. Even Evan Simpson at 113, Henry Cohen at 152, Gerald Norton at 160, Drew Gerdes at 182, Ian Bonencamp at 195 also qualified. Waterloo East had three qualifiers, Isaac Lomas at 132, Damaris Henderson at 170 earned his second consecutive trip to the championships, and Kieran Harris Vensley at 285. Waterloo West saw two of its wrestlers qualify. Cooper Paxton is making a return trip to the Wells Fargo and N. L. Kudik qualified at 285. Paxton lost his opening match Saturday and then won four straight wrestleback matches to finish at 145. Fresh off its state dual championship, Waverly Shellrock qualified 12 wrestlers to the 3A field at a district at Cedar Rapids, Jefferson. The Go Hawks got championship efforts from Riker Graf at 113, Zane Barons at 132, Ryder Block at 138, Boz Diaz at 145, Danny Diaz at 160, Xander Weidemeyer at 170, Cole Thompson at 182, McCray Haggerty at 195, Caden Wetherell at 220, and Jake Walker at 285. Also qualifying were Alex Horniak at 120 and Ethan Bibler at 152. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, February 12th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access the recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.